0: This is Fogland Lighthouse. I'm Jack Dean. October the 4th, 1930. You had to have been there, really. But since you probably weren't, let me tell you about who was. First, there were the unnamed crowds watching on the ground below as the crew above them got ready for takeoff. The R101, the largest airship ever built, 224 metres long, That's a Westminster Abbey with a football field out front for the lovers of meaningless visual comparisons out there. They may or may not have known about the science behind the 16 vast hydrogen gas bags that held it up. But even if you did, it would have looked like a miracle. For something so gigantic to just float there. No roar of engines or continuous motion to keep it aloft. No sound at all. But the bleat of nearby sheep in that Bedfordshire field and the gentle patter of rain making its aluminium powder-coated cover glint gently in the sunset. Among the crowd would have been the women labourers of the Royal Airship Works, who would have known all too well the mechanics of those gas bags. Though other materials had been tried, no better one had yet been found to hold the five million cubic feet of hydrogen needed than the lining of the intestines of oxen. And so, these women took the barrels full of the guts of a million and a half dead ones shipped from Argentina, and in foul, stinking factories would stretch them out and sew them together by hand, for a ship whose 54 crew and passengers would not include a single member of their sex. There would have been a smattering of press there too, the mail, the mirror, the herald, the usual suspects. Not as many as when the airship they dubbed the Titanic of the skies took its maiden voyage over London on a beautiful sunny day the year before, getting stunned looks from lawyers drinking in the square miles beer gardens, cheers from crowds gathering on the rooftops, and even a cheeky flyby from the Prince of Wales in his personal plane. But tonight's launch still warranted one or two reporters. This, after all, was the main event the long-anticipated journey from Cardington to Karachi, more than 4,000 miles with just one refuelling stop on the way in Ismailia, Egypt. Now let us follow their gaze, up the 200 spiralling metal steps of the mooring tower to the ship itself and the people aboard it. There was Vincent Richmond, the lead designer of the R101, watching the sunset through the observation deck with a sharp suit and a cautious smile. Richmond had little to no formal engineering training or technical knowledge, but he had big dreams. He was tired of seeing the Germans and their legendary Zeppelin company leave British airships in the dust. Even though after World War I, Germany had been compelled to surrender all its airships, the grafters at Zeppelin cut a backroom deal with the Americans and kept on flying, conducting spectacular passenger voyages around South America, while the British balloons hardly ever made it out of their sheds. But Richmond had a plan to change all that. He'd abandoned the German design and made his own from the ground up. He streamlined and sped up production so that, unlike the artisanal Zeppelin craft, his airships could be mass produced. If this voyage went well and he got the green light from government, he could have an entire commercial fleet out there in a few years. With ten times the range and thirty times the lift of an aeroplane, and the ability to land anywhere you could throw down a cable, airships were the clear choice of the future. A bright one where the British Empire would emerge from the trauma of the Great War, more connected, more democratic, and more prosperous than ever. There was Michael Rope, assistant lead designer, who was too busy with the last-minute checks to watch sunsets. Over the past few years, he had taken Richmond's ambitious and often borderline whimsical designs and tempered them with his practical engineering nous to turn them into the living, breathing, man-made sky whale they climbed aboard that day. There was Captain Herbert Carmichael Irwin, fit, strong, a former Olympic long-distance runner who stood waiting for departure in the lower control car, a little pale, a little tense, a little tired. This wasn't his usual self. Most days you'd see him springing down the walkway or whistling an Irish folk tune. But on one of his whistling walks back in June, he had noticed that hundreds of tiny holes were appearing in the airship's gas bags, leaking hydrogen that pitched his whistling up an octave, and went to fetch rope. Maybe it was nothing after all, but best to get a second opinion. There was Wing Commander Reginald Blaney Baltiel Colmore putting his feet up in the smoking room. Yes, an airship full to the brim with highly flammable hydrogen had a smoking room because this was 1930 and what were they gonna do, not smoke? Colmore had received reports from Rope that June warning about the holes and about weaknesses in the airship's fabric cover that could make it burst open in bad conditions, leaving the gas bags exposed. Rope called for a complete redesign to address these problems. Colmore thought he was overreacting. He got some lightweight padding thrown around the gas bags and replaced most of the cover. There was First Officer Noel Atherstone, who was going over and over the checklist with red and bleary eyes. He had hardly slept in 96 hours getting this hulking piece of mad science ready for the journey, issuing scores of detailed, numerically ordered flight instructions to the crew. He snapped at a subordinate for violating instruction number 32, no photography, and made him sheepishly hand over his camera to be tossed out of the ship. He had told his superiors again and again they needed more tests. The ship had never flown in seriously bad weather, or for more than a few hours on the trot. They were nowhere near ready for a flight of this magnitude. Given that it had taken a whole year to honour his simple request for uniforms, he was certain that the bureaucracy of the higher-ups would grind too slowly to issue the R101's Certificate of Airworthiness in time for the launch, letting them off on a technicality. But when the certificate had landed on his desk two days ago, he knew the jig was up. One way or another, they were heading out tonight. There was James Buck the valet to Lord Thompson, Secretary of State for Air, the airship's most prestigious passenger, who dutifully hauled his master's panoply of baggage aboard. Nearly every other person aboard the R101 had their luggage restricted to a tight 15 pounds each, so as to not mess with the ship's buoyancy. But Thompson's came in at 254 pounds, including two bags, four suitcases, two crates of champagne, a ceremonial sword, and a rug. They had to throw a decent shindig when they got to Egypt, after all. There was Albert Savage, chief steward, who leaned fastidiously over the shoulder of Eric Graham, the cook, to check that the potatoes were chopped to the right proportions. The year before, Savage had been ordered to serve a meal for nearly a 100 MPs invited by Lord Thompson for a joyride on the R101, a ship that could barely carry that many people's weight, let alone lay on a feast worthy of the mandarins of the empire. In the end, they had pulled it off, although they ended up not flying due to bad weather. After Lord Thompson took them on a grand tour of the ship, the ornate pillars in its lounge, the huge glass panels of the observation deck, the royal blue carpet and silver flower buckets lining the walkways, the MPs were sat down in the dining room and fed oxtail soup, roast chicken and bacon, jam tarts and rice pudding, but all was not quite as it seemed. To minimise weight, the walls were made of fabric, the grand pillars were balsa wood, the chairs were wicker, the glass in the observation deck was warped around the edges, and the four-course meal could never have been cooked on the ship's unreliable electric oven. So Savage had the whole thing prepared on the ground and snuck aboard in huge pots while no one was looking. Then there was Air Minister Lord Christopher Birdwood Thompson himself, Six foot five and imposing as all hell, climbing out of a blue chauffeured Daimler and riding the mooring tower's creaking elevator to the top. Thompson knew his career and reputation hinged on the R101 project going well. He had put up with pressure from number 10 as they went further and further over budget and the delays dragged on, with ridicule in the House of Commons as even backbenchers in his own Labour Party mocked his airship dreams and accused him of gas -er bagger whatever that was, with snooty comments from the MPs he had so generously invited aboard the ship about not getting to fly that day. And so, like Phileas Fogg, he had made them a wager. He would leave on October 4th, four days into the Imperial Conference in London, and return on October 20th to address it before it was over. Around the world in 16 days. The boys working on the ship would complain and ask for more time, but they always did that. He would show the doubters. He would show them all. There was Harry Leach, foreman engineer, who hugged his crying seven-year-old daughter on the boarding platform. And was handed a sprig of white heather by his wife as a good luck charm. Then they waved goodbye. The hatch was closed, and Captain Irwin barked through the metal voice tubes. Stand by to slip. Slip. All engines full speed astern. Then the ship's riggers, Taylor and Norcott and Church and Richardson and Radcliffe and Rudd scrambled across the ship, released the umbilical cord of cables tying it down and let out some of the huge sacks of water ballast attached to the ship, sending a great shower of droplets to mix with the evening's rain. Then the engineers, Joe Binks and Arthur Bell, fired up the five immense diesel-powered propellers under the ship and they were away. There was Maurice Giblet, Chief Meteorological Officer, poring over the chart table. He had created bespoke weather maps of the whole route, but if a heavy storm blew them off course, they would be useless. And the bleeping Morse code messages coming from ground control were telling him that just such a storm was on its way. There was Major George Herbert Scott, who waved Giblet's concerns away with a buck-toothed smile. The pudgy, day-drinking, pipe-smoking Lothario was once a hero of early airship flight. The first man to cross the Atlantic both ways by air back in 1919. He'd ridden out his fair share of storms then and he'd ride this one out by jingo. After Scott had crashed multiple airships throughout the 20s, they had tried to promote him out of active service, giving him the impressive-sounding but mostly made-up title of non-executive admiral. But Scott kept hopping on flights as a backseat driver. And so, though Irwin was the captain, if the great major Scott said press on, then they had to press on. There was Arthur Disley, wireless operator, who brought a radio into the lounge as they passed over London, its streetlights flickering like a million matches in the cloudy night. A small group had gathered to rest after the excitement of the launch. Savage brought in some snacks, As Disley twiddled the tuning knob on the radio, suddenly a wave of triumphal brass and strings swept in over the static. Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance, broadcast live from a performance by the BBC Philharmonic in Queen's Hall down below. In a few hours... Isley would wake in the night to the sound of gongs clanging throughout the ship to signal slowing of the engines. He would find himself sliding down his bed as the storm winds over France sent the ship into a nosedive. He would see Chief Cox and George Hunt run past his quarters yelling, ''We're down, lads!'' He would sprint to shut off the two electricity switches as per emergency protocol. He would trip the first one, but then he would hear the crunch of impact as the ship hit the ground and the wind howling through the walkway as the cover tore open. He would see a white flare flash like a rogue star in the night, set off unintentionally by breakages in the control cabin. Then see a fireball tear through the ship around him as the hydrogen ignited. He would see the decks collapsing, blocking his way out, and smell smoke filling the room. He would try and ram through the walls and give up. He would say a final prayer and fall unconscious. In the end, thanks to Leech digging him out by sheer white-heather-based luck before the flames took everything, he would be one of only six that survived. This would all happen in a few hours. But I would rather leave Disley here, with his friends and crewmates, eating bread and cheese and sipping a little celebratory beer, drifting over London, letting the grandiose melodies of Elgar waft through the lounge, in a world where men could still float. Fogland Lighthouse is written, produced, and scored by me, Jack Dean. This episode is supported by Arts Council England and was commissioned by the Library Presents as part of their autumn season. You can check that out through the links in the liner notes for this episode. The show is presented by Jack Dean and Company. You can find out more about us and our projects at jackdean.co.uk. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me on jack at jackdean.co.uk. If you get a moment, please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast with someone you think might like it. Those both help an awful lot. I'll catch you guys next week.